Lord, may I speak in the words of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So the next 10 weeks, we've got the same Bible reading, week after week after week, which actually in a Cranmer's prayer book was in the prayer book week after week after week anyway. So this is just what we should have as part of our normal diet, namely the Ten Commandments. And commandments don't go down very well in our culture today, do they? If the vicar issues a decree saying do this or do that or do the other, uh, the answer is probably... um, (laughs) Let's just keep away from him. Um, that's, that's just in my household, let alone at church. We, we're, we're not good on commandments, are we? And our sense of a commandment is of a constraining, um, a crippling thing to be told what to do. Don't tell me what to do. I'll make my own truth. I'll make my own way in the world. So in order to understand why Ten Commandments are such a big part of the Hebrew faith and of the Christian faith, We have to understand the context that they come in and what God was doing with them. So to do this, you have to get into the story we've been telling over the course of last term and this, the story of the Exodus. The people of God have been in Egypt for nearly 400 years. They've had the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They've had the sense they're going to be a people who are going to bless many nations. And now they're finally getting out of Egypt. They can be the people that they were set apart to be. They can be defined by God himself. They can be a holy people. And they've been traveling now uh, for three months. This is the the first day of the third month after they've left Egypt. And they've come to the great mountain of Sinai, way down south of where uh, modern-day Israel is focused. And God's told them that you're going to be a treasured possession if you obey my covenant. The whole earth is mine, but you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And Moses has summoned the people together, and they've said, we will do everything that the Lord has said. We're going to do everything that the Lord asks us to do. And there's been this dense cloud of God's presence among them. Remember, they had the pillar of fire and a dense cloud. The clouds got intensified, and, and, um, and Moses has been told by God that their people will hear me speaking with you, And they will always put their trust in Moses. So the people of God are about to hear God himself speaking with Moses. It's a key, pivotal moment. And you'll remember at the end of the reading Dave gave, the people of God saying, "Um, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. (laughs) They're about to hear from God. And when they've heard from God, they're like, please don't let that ever happen to us again. That was way too intense, way too scary. We, we fear him. And God sort of sets up this environment because he wants them to have a healthy fear of him. And it's important for us, too, to have a very healthy fear of God. We know from the wisdom books in the scripture that something gives us wisdom. What gives us wisdom? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This isn't the fear of Stephen King, sort of a clown appearing in the middle of the night and slitting your throat. It's not that sort of fear. It's a holy, reverent fear of an awesome God, a God who produces awe in you. He might give you jitters in the stomach. He might make you go, please don't speak directly to me. There's a one where you know your place and you know his place and you respect the gap in the, in the difference. So the people who hear me speaking, they will always trust you. And Moses tells the Lord what the people have said. And, and so God says, right, consecrate them. 
Make them wash their clothes, be ready. Uh, Sinai, uh, make it out of limits so you're not allowed to come on this mountain. You'll be put to death, you'll be stone shot with arrows. No one who comes on this mountain will live. It's separate, there's a ram's horn blast, and, and, and no one after that point is allowed to approach the mountain. People have to abstain from sexual relationships. There's three days of purifying that goes on, and God, to back it up, sends thunder and lightning and thick cloud. Trumpet blast comes. Everyone is trembling. These Ten Commandments are set up by the most incredible sort of sound and light display you could imagine going on. Just feel the Hollywood sort of fear of this. Boom! What's going to happen? And so he leads the people out of the camp to meet with God. They stand at the foot of the mountain. Sinai's covered with smoke. The Lord's descended on it in fire. There's smoke billowing. There's a furnace. The mountain's trembling. The sound of the trumpet gets louder and louder. Moses speaks and the voice of God answers him. And it says the Lord descends to the top of Mount Sinai, calls Moses to the top of the mountains. They meet together. And then the Lord says, go down and warn the people that they do not force their way through to the Lord. So there's another layer of like, everyone's gathered around and purified themselves for three days. Moses has gone up. God's come down. Moses is sent down again. Warn them again. Uh, Be careful. Even the priests must consecrate themselves or the Lord himself will break out against them. And Moses says to the Lord, the people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourselves warned us, put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. So he's saying, the people will do what they're told. But the Lord says, go down and bring Aaron with you. Priests and people must not force their way through or I'll break out against them. And Moses goes down to the people and tells them this. And then we don't have stage directions between uh, chapter 19, verse 25, and chapter 20, verse 1. There's no stage directions. There's nothing that says, and Moses walked up the mountain. We've got Moses down talking to the people at this point, and then suddenly, and God spoke all these words. So it doesn't seem like Moses is way up the top of the mountain at the moment on his own with God. The last thing we know is that Moses has gone down to the people, and God spoke these words. And remember that um, that God had said in 19 verse 9, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. So these words, these 10 commandments that come now in chapter 20, I think the implication is that the people of God heard these being pronounced from the cloud. I am the Lord your God. First great revelation. This is the I am God. The I am Yahweh God. This is increasing new revelation for the people of God in the time of Moses. He is a personal God. We have it in our NIV as the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, the Lord, the Yahweh God, the Jehovah God, the Y-H-W-H God, the personal I am who I am God. This is the God they worship. Not a random God, not the sun, not the moon, not any of these other gods of the pagans around them, a personal God who is and was and is to come. The I am God is their God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. The God that you know his name of, and the God that you've got history with. The God who's revealed himself to you, and the God who's walked with you. The God who you know what to address him by, if you dare. And the God who you've seen at work and action in the world. Why should you listen to this God? Because you are his and he is yours. 
You know his name. And he has been involved in your life in incredible ways. Let's just translate that forward, shall we? To the Christian era. We know God by many names, don't we? One of the great names we know him by is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus Christ. And we've got history with Jesus as well. We've been on an adventure with him. We've crossed out of darkness into light. We've come from sin into hope. We've come from death into life. We've got history with Jesus. And we know his name. We know the name of Yahweh, the Lord God. We know that he's the rescuing God. We know the name of Jesus. We know that he's rescued us from our sin. And therefore, on the basis of our our knowledge of him, his knowledge of us and our history with him, therefore we're going to hear his commandments. Verse 1, and the whole subject of today's address, you shall have no other gods before me. Have you ever stopped to think this is quite a strange thing for the one God to say? (laughs) I mean, the Christian faith doesn't presume there's lots of gods out there, does it? The Christian faith and the Jewish faith presume that there is one God. The Lord your God is one. You shall love him with all your heart, soul, strength, mind. There is one God. You shall have no other gods but me. What does it mean? If there aren't any other gods, how can you have any other gods but me? It gets to the very core of what being a human is. Humanity in scripture terms is Something created by God with a specific possibility in us. The possibility of, we often describe it as love, but more essentially even than that, of worshipping. We have the ability to give worth to something higher than us and pour our love, lavish our love into that thing. And in it find our fulfillment. The great reformer said that the chief end of humankind is to praise God and enjoy him forever. The reason you live is to praise God and to enjoy God forever. That's the potential you have. You are made to worship God. But, as we'll see in a moment, the tendency of humanity is to take that incredible attribute we have and position it onto something else. I want you to go on a brain journey and imagine yourself here, hearing these words sounding out from the cloud. At the end of these Ten Commandments, you're going to say to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. You're in an intense situation here. You're hearing God say, do not have any gods before me. And you'll hear in the next week, you shall not make any image for yourself in the form of anything and worship or bow down to it. Don't make any gods before me. And Moses goes back up the mountain to meet with God. They see thunder and lightning and trumpets. And he goes off into the thick darkness where God is. They remain at a distance. And while he's up there, the Lord speaks another 630 or so laws, which take up the next 13, well, 11 chapters of Exodus, all the way up to finishing with laws about the Sabbath. And then in Exodus 31, verse 18, when the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the covenant law, the tablets of stone inscribed by the very finger of God. But chapter 32, 
What have you been doing while Moses has been up the mountain in the cloud? Not for many days. What have you been doing? You who were made to worship. You who are enabled to enjoy God forever and praise him. Well, you, like your ancestors, have found the nearest looking rallying point person, Aaron, who's been given some of God's powers in the past, and said to him, come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. You feckless, fickle people. (laughs) God's absented himself. Moses has absented himself. And you've just fallen away into making gods that look like the gods of Egypt, a golden calf. Humanity is made to enjoy God forever and praise him. The least absenting of God's self when he's been so tangibly real, so close. We make other quote-unquote gods to bow down and worship. And the full terror of what God is in response to that, to purify his people and then releasing uh, other tablets in chapter 34, Uh, You can read about for yourself and look ahead. What did the golden calf do for those people while Moses was away? It was a rallying point. It was a symbol of national unity. It was a focus. What happened to the golden calf? Moses has to grind it into powder and make the people eat it. All of their wealth wasted on this false god. What did it do for them? Did it answer their prayers? Did it help them? Did it take them out of Sinai? Did it look after them? Did it care for them? Did it protect them? Did it nurture them? None of these things. And yet they still felt a need to make a God for themselves. And One of the reasons we're given the Old Testament to read is because we do it too. It reveals our hearts to us. This isn't the story of a particularly feckless, helpless group of people. It's not a particularly unfaithful group of people. These are people who had every opportunity to be faithful to God. And they, like us, quickly go astray. One of the Psalms says, Today, If you hear my voice, do not be like the people in Egypt, in a desert, who wandered around for 40 years and 40 nights. Why does the psalmist say that centuries later? Because the people in his day had the tendency to be unfaithful as well. And dear Christian people, do we not have that in our hearts as well? Of course, we're in a different position. We're the recipients of the Holy Spirit. God lives inside us. The New Testament makes it quite clear that all the glory Moses had when he came down from the mountain is surpassed by the glory that even the weakest of us Christians have. Because we have God permanently living inside us. We don't just see him face to face. We get him inside us. Incredible. The glory that we have because of Jesus. But even so... 
so easy to make something else between us and God. Something else to worship. A career, a relationship, a, a, an opportunity, a destination, a bank account, a car, a house. Our own sense of security, our own sense of just meanness, just want to look after me. All these things. And probably the weakest of all worships is self-worship. <laughs> all about me. It's all about me. You shall have no other gods before me. Is this the statement of a megalomaniac God who is sort of in need of attention? You know, sort of imagine a contemporary Western politician who wants a lot of attention from everyone all the time. You know, you must look at me on the news. I'm going to say something else outrageous today so I get your attention. Is that what God's doing? You know, give me your attention. I'm weak and, and needy. That's not the revelation at all of God in these chapters, is it? It's not a, a God who's lacking something, who needs us to fill up his emotional deficits. This God is all sufficient, utterly contained. So why ask us to worship him? It comes back again to that Westminster Catechism. The chief end of humanity, the chief end of man, is to praise God and enjoy him forever. God knows it's what we were made for. He knows that when we divide ourselves like a Voldemort in the Harry Potter stories, we become less than we could be. Like fractions of ourselves. He wants us to be wholeheartedly for him. Don't worship yourself. Don't worship your wife. Don't worship your children. Don't worship your parents. Don't worship your ancestors. Don't worship the gods. Don't worship the cars. Don't worship the television. Don't worship alcohol. Don't worship your addictions. You shall have no God before me. Why? Because I am the only God. And it's only when you give me the worth that I made you to give that you yourself can be complete as well. Ten commandments, ten rules to live by. What's the effect of keeping these commandments? Freedom. Freedom. It's sometimes being said, imagine a football pitch being played on by a group of children with no referee. Suddenly, take away the position of the goalposts, take away the sidelines, and take away the colors differentiating which teams people are on. What do you think happens next? Full-blown chaos. Add in the lines, add in the goalposts, add in the referees, add in the color t-shirts. What happens? A glorious and freeing game of football. You shall have no other God before me. God's bringing to focus the ways to live a whole and wonderful life. And the most important thing of all is to remember there is one God and he deserves all our attention, praise and honor. May God bless the word to us today in Jesus' name.